Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room with your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell, interviewing the leading doctors in the country to get insights into the best medical treatments available today. Not everyone has access to the best specialists, but you can advocate for yourself and learn the right questions to ask your doctor and the best possible treatment options. Remember, what you know can make a difference in your health care. Welcome to The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. High blood pressure or hypertension is called the silent killer for a good reason. Thousands of people in the United States have hypertension and don't even know it. Untreated hypertension can lead to heart attacks and strokes, devastating yet so preventable. There are many drugs available now to treat hypertension, but in many cases, patients are not being treated with the best choice of medication. My guest today, Dr. Samuel Mann, is a hypertension specialist. He's a clinical professor of medicine at Weill Cornell Medical College at Presbyterian New York Hospital. He has written over 50 scientific articles and book chapters on the subject. He is the author of two terrific books for the public on understanding hypertension. One of them is called Healing Hypertension, and the other is Hypertension and You. Welcome, Dr. Mann, to the podcast. Thank you, Dean. Okay, so where I want to start, and there's a lot of good things we're going to get into, and I think the listeners are going to really get a lot of value out of this, but one of the confusing things, I think, to a lot of people still, because they read different or hear different things in the newspapers, how do you define hypertension? What are the numbers that concern you? I mean, is it over 140, over 90? Is it 120, over 80? Is that like the perfect one that very few people can really achieve? Is it different in the elderly? So. You know, what, when you are assessing a patient, what, uh, what do you look at? Well, the uh, criterion used to be above 140 over 90 was hypertension, and in Europe, even 150 over 100 before they would treat. Those numbers have come down, and currently the criterion is 130 over 80. Above 130 over 80 is considered hypertensive. And treatment should be considered certainly diet and exercise and reducing salt, but also medication. 120 to 130 is considered high normal. It also depends on age. Uh, patients who are very elderly, would I treat them for a blood pressure of 135? I might not because there are concerns that too low a blood pressure could do more harm in the elderly. But for general population, currently the criterion is 130 over 80. Okay, those are really good points because, right, in the elderly, there's obviously a whole different dynamic. You know, I want to read this quote to you. This was in actually one of the, uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association several years ago. It says, our current prescribing for hypertension is very primitive. This was by Dr. Michael Alderman. And I know from your background in, in the medical research, there are a lot of choices today for patients, you know, to take blood pressure medication. Essentially, there's five different groups. There's the beta blockers. There's diuretics. There's something called the ACE inhibitors. There's also a relative of that, the angiotensin receptor blockers. And there's calcium channel blockers. And I want to ask you, because again, some of the things that I was reading is that age and race are quite important in determining what medication a patient should be on. Right. This discussion has to start with the concept of precision medicine. And what that means is every patient is different Every patient is an individual. You can't take one treatment and, and give it for all. 
And, and the problem with a lot of the large-scale trials is that if they show that drug A is effective in 52% and drug B in 45%, the conclusion shouldn't be drug A is a better drug for everybody. The task is to find out who needs drug A and who needs drug B. And that's the art of medicine, and there's a lot to go by. Genetics are not going to be as helpful as they are in some other areas because there are many, many, many genes involved in hypertension, and there's no one or two or three or ten genes that you can say, aha, this gene I'll treat with that drug. It's not going to happen. That said, precision medicine, we've been doing that here at the Hypertension Center for years where there are other clinical clues that tell us this person needs that drug and that person needs the other drug. Two of the most widely used parameters are race and age. African-American patients tend to respond better to drugs like diuretics and calcium channel blockers. White patients tend to respond equally well to those drugs as well as to ACE inhibitors and ARBs and beta blockers. Older patients tend to respond better to diuretics than younger patients do. Part of that is about salt sensitivity. Black patients are more sensitive to salt effect on blood pressure, and that's why diuretics work best in black patients. And then there are all kinds of drug combinations. So that's just a starter. Right. You know, well, the thing I wanted to point out, because I, I see this with so many patients who have been prescribed you know, medication for blood pressure, it does seem a little bit to me like a little eeny, meeny, mighty mo. They just, it, a, a patient gets arbitrarily picked a blood pressure medicine. They see if it works. If it doesn't work, something else is added on. And as you mentioned, there really is, there's some precision. There's some art to all this. And, you know, one of the things that I know that you've talked to me about, and I've seen this in the articles also, is that looking at also a simple blood test like a renin level, and I, I wanted to go into this because you talk about this in your book, Hypertension in You, which I, I think is so important. And I know this may seem a little bit complex, but I think if the listener stays with us, they're going to appreciate how important this is in assessing what blood pressure medicine you should take. And you mentioned in the book essentially three categories, the sodium volume overload category. You also talk about the renin-angiotensin system, which is the hormone-related type, and you talk about the sympathetic nervous system. So if you wouldn't mind, Dr. Mann, going through a little bit, again, you're seeing a patient that comes in, maybe let's say it's a 45-year-old white male or whether it's a black male. Aside from getting their history and obviously checking out their weight and, and you know body mass index, what blood tests are you going to look at that may help determine how you're going to treat them? The blood tests I would get obviously check kidney function, uh, BUN and creatinine to see if there's any kidney disease. Check urine protein. If there is protein, it's telling us there's injury to the kidney and certainly the blood pressure needs to be treated. In my practice, I sometimes check the amount of sodium in the urine, which is uh, an indicator of how much salt is in the person's diet. And the renin test is a test that helps tell me if you take, you can take 90% of hypertension and 90% of hypertension is driven by either salt in volume, fluid volume, or the renin angiotensin hormonal system. Both of those are headquartered in the kidneys. 
And the renin test helps tell us if the renin is high, think of the hormone renin causing the hypertension and drugs that block the renin angiotensin system, such as the ACEs and the ARBs, would be a first choice. Mm -hmm. If the renin is low, it suggests that that hormonal system is not driving the hypertension and that volume-mediated hypertension related to sodium retention or, or delayed excretion and that a diuretic or a calcium channel blocker would be effective. In many patients, you need literally one from, drug a, one from column A and one from column B because for many people, you have both mechanisms, the renin-angiotensin mechanism and the sodium volume mechanism. Well, how could it be both so, if the, if the renin's high or low? Why wouldn't it wouldn't then just have a normal level of the renin? It can be tricky. A low renin suggests that it is sodium volume. A high renin suggests that it is the renin angiotensin system. What's trickier is that a lot of patients have a renin value in the middle range where it's hard to call and it could be both mechanisms. It's also hard when patients are taking medicine that affect the renin levels, then interpreting it becomes tricky. So that the renin level is a guideline. It's helpful when it's low or high, but in most people in the middle range, it's murky. And also, as we said, there are many genes and many people have hypertension driven by both renin and sodium volume mechanisms and need a combination of drugs to tackle both mechanisms. Okay, let's talk about something because you're, you're touching upon this, salt. And people have heard for years, avoid salt. It's bad for you. It's going to drive your blood pressure up. Obviously, we all know, too, salt is in everything. And is it practical or even possible to really lower your blood pressure, let's say, following the, the DASH diet, that dietary approach to stop hypertension? I mean, you know, there are books about it, but when you get into a real-world reality, it's quite tough. Or Have you seen patients that have fastidiously adhered to the DASH diet be able to significantly lower their pressure, or are they just talking about a couple of points? I make two points on that. First, there is controversy about how low to go with salt, and some claim in their studies that actually a very low-salt diet, the outcome can be worse than a low-salt diet. I'm sure so people read about that. <laughs> the second consideration is that salt does not drive hypertension in everybody. Some people are salt-sensitive, some people are not salt-sensitive. Ideally, you want to treat the salt-sensitive hypertension with a diuretic or a calcium channel blocker. And the person who's not salt-sensitive, then the amount of salt he eats, unless it's sky-high, is not driving the hypertension. And putting them on a low-salt diet actually might be harmful because the, the salt is not harming them. How would you define salt-sensitive? Is it someone else who gets extremely thirsty after having like a salty dish, or is it really more of the blood tests again, the renin? <laughs> right, good question. What I mean by salt-sensitive is that salt intake affects their blood pressure. Okay, so it's not like they're like getting super thirsty is, and yes, uh, because, running for the water fountain. Yeah. Okay. And, and likewise, salt restriction lowers the blood pressure. Okay. In people whose hypertension is salt-sensitive, lowering the salt intake can lower blood pressure by 5, 10 millimeters, almost as much as one of the drugs can. So for people with mild hypertension, that can help one avoid medication. If somebody has severe hypertension, less medicine, but it's not going to get you all the way down to normal. The second question is, well, how do people reduce their salt intake? And 
people generally are really unaware of what the biggest offenders are and to be very, very uh, quick about it. The two questions I ask first are how often do you eat in a restaurant or order in or eat processed canned or frozen food? Those are all high salt. The surprise one, though, is bread, which is high salt. So somebody who eats out, eats in a cafeteria during the workday or eats out at night and, and eats a lot of bread, those are the big problems. At home or even in a restaurant, if something is made without salt, the salt you add is much less than what's in all these processed or restaurant foods. Those are the biggest offenders. And that tells me more than anything else if the person has a moderate or high salt diet. What do you think about certain supplements? Uh, I've heard, you know, in, in certain articles that L-arginine, amino acid, and I, I think even, well, supposedly it, it, it elevates your nitrous oxide. Have you found any, because a lot of my listeners like to know about natural things, if they can possibly avoid medications, that, that any supplements that have been reasonable in lowering blood pressure? Now, that's a very important question because you read all over this or that or that supplement can help blood pressure. The one thing I would say, there's no doubt that it helps blood pressure, is potassium intake. A high potassium intake can actually negate the effect of salt on blood pressure. That makes sense because they're opposite, right? So the listeners should realize it's like one of the first lessons you get in medical school. You know, the, the you know the sodium potassium work in opposite directions inside your cells. So yes. Right. And then the question is, can potassium supplements lower your pressure? And the answer is yes, but the best way to get potassium is with a healthy diet that sure. has a lot of potassium in right. it. So potassium, there's no question. There are so many suggested supplements that are claimed to lower blood pressure, and there are not adequate studies on them. In some, there are studies that show that they don't help. There are a lot of studies where the results are conflicting. I think the most recent thing was beet juice, and it's controversial from the studies. Well, I think people worry about the elasticity of the arteries, too. I mean, it's also, I mean, I know the blood pressure is important also, but it's worth, again, I know there's certain devices now, again, I don't know how reputable they are, but that supposedly increases arterial elasticity, because that's, again, what we all worry about is getting stiff arteries. That's also, obviously, what contributes to blood pressure and probably plaque and and atherosclerosis. I mean, do you you agree on that and as far as, I mean, it makes sense if things make the arterioles and more dilated and open and flexible. Right. Um, again, a healthy diet's the key. Mm-hmm. And there have been conflicts in what public health has advised in terms of diet over the years. And it's not so much fats as it is carbs that seem to be the bigger offenders. Right. Well, they, well, they say also, too, a lot of things like walnuts and different kind of nuts, again, with the vitamin E, are all very good for arterial elasticity. And obviously, I think they really also help the omega-3 profile, all these things, which, again, what's flowing through the arteries, which I would, would assume is going to really affect the blood pressure in, in some way. Yeah, eventually, uh, in the older population, the stiff arteries drive the high blood pressure, particularly what's called systolic hypertension, where the upper number is high, 160, but the lower number is normal, say 70. And the big drop from the first number to the second reflects stiff arteries. That you see in hypertension more and more as people age. Again, healthy diet and exercise. The supplements, they're just are not enough definitive 
studies that come out and say, aha, we see a big difference. And a lot of the studies, first of all, a lot of things are never studied formally and right, well. Right, because they don't have they don't have the nobody's backing. Nobody's going to make money. Right, nobody's going to. Right, you know. So we have to sometimes use you know common sense, and I guess foods that, like you were saying, foods that are high in potassium make sense. And to me, some foods I guess that are high in L-arginine or or beets, obviously, I think it's with nitrous oxide, you know, that dilate the arteries a little bit, seems to make sense to me. And I think obviously there's no harm in eating a a nice salad with beets and asparagus and all those other good stuff. Let's move on to exercise. Now, again, there are people who, when they find out they have high blood pressure, say, okay, you know, I'm going to run down my high blood pressure. Have you found, I mean, I mean, I'm sure marathon runners, most of them have quite good blood pressure. I mean, is there, would you say, a, a range where, again, if a person's running two, three miles a week, not enough, or that should be enough to lower their blood pressure a little bit? What have you seen in your experience? The studies seem to uh, come to a conclusion of moderate amount of exercise. I, I can't say a specific amount because different studies claim different amounts, but a, an average figure would be 20, 30 minutes, four times a week. Okay. Would be an average figure. Well, what I'm going to ask, I'm going to I'm going to push you on this a little bit because you know, at the smartest doctor in the room, and I do consider you the smartest hypertension person I know. I want to know from your personal experience with patients. I, we're going to share some interesting stories in a few minutes, but in your experience, taking, I mean, I'm sure you've seen a lot of interesting patients over the years, and I'm sure maybe someone came into you, and we'll talk about this in a minute, and said, "I don't want to take medicine, Doctor Man. I want to. I'm going to get in amazing shape." And I'm going to run 10 miles a week and I'm going to eat a super lean dash diet. Have you seen that in your practice? It's the rare patient who does that. Even in New York? I mean, we have some, (laughs) we have some very type A people, which we're going to talk about. So you're telling me, so you haven't really seen that. You haven't seen where a patient who's come in and said, look, I really don't want to be on medication tell me the program or I'm going to design it because I all my friends who run, who do uh, triathlons, you know, they don't have any high blood pressure problem. Is that person, you know, is that, is that a reasonable approach? Well, I think most patients will come in and say, I'd prefer not to be on medicine. The question is how many will take the actions to avoid it? And human nature is a problem. We have habits. There are some motivated patients who do beautifully. They're wonderful to see, but they're the, the exception, unfortunately. People just don't change their habits drastically enough. If there were anything that, I mean, if you want to put the pieces together, one is, number one is weight loss. Number two is exercise. Number three, reducing salt in people who are salt, whose hypertension is salt sensitive. Those are the major things. Okay, but you haven't seen like a specific regimen, like as I said, again, where people exercise, you know, not just, you know, not just leisurely, even though I think that, I think also constant walking. I mean, I think New Yorkers in general are luckier than people in the suburbs who are driving everywhere. You're really just more physically active. You know, and again, we hear about the 10,000 step rule, you know, that hopefully also supposed to help you lose weight. But there's nothing where you would say or in your experience, like, again, that if your patients are saying, I'm doing 10,000 steps a day. Or again, we know by doing intense, vigorous exercise for 20 minutes, even though that brings up the blood pressure, it actually lowers it over 
time. So again, I was just curious, you know, if you'd see patients like this, but I wanted to touch upon another thing, which is very important. It was really extremely sad to me. A friend of mine who had once been known to me, he had been overweight, but he also suffered from high blood pressure. And I ended up finding out that he had a devastating stroke. And what I found out from friends later on was that he had hypertension, but he stopped taking his medication because of the side effects of erectile dysfunction and fatigue. And, you know, this is obviously one of the main reasons that we're doing this podcast, because people really have to understand that there is a treatment for this. And again, as I said in the beginning, it's a silent killer because many patients don't have symptoms. So what do you say to patients that are worried about the side effects? How, are you, how can you try to minimize that for them in selection of medication? Dean, I, I can say that in 95 to 98% of patients, or maybe even more, one can find a combination of drugs that can be tolerated without side effects or with minimal side effects and control the blood pressure. It's the rare patient who cannot be controlled without side effects. The interesting thing is, I mean, obviously in tailoring the drug regimen to a patient, if drug A causes a side effect and drug B tends to work in similar patients, then you have an alternative. You have the alternative of playing with the dose. Sometimes drugs are given in too high a dose. Sometimes a combination of two drugs at low dose has fewer side effects than one drug at high dose. Right, that's a great, that's a great point. I think, I think that, you know, again, something I, we talked about once before, I was at a lecture 30 years ago in, in residency, and one of the specialists at the time, I think we talked about him, Dr. Fishman, had said sometimes using two medications, because people hate more medications. Oh, no, no, not another pill. But sometimes two medications in low dose actually get a better synergistic effect than one alone or going even higher on one alone. Is that what you're, you're saying? Yes. And however, there are some patients in whom their pressure does not come under control because the dose they're on is not enough for them. Half of resistant hypertension is controlled by using a diuretic dose or combination higher than the usual. So some people need a higher dose, and, and there are many reasons why they might need a higher dose. And if you don't get to that higher dose, you never get their pressure under control. However, the flip side is that for many people who don't need a high dose, there are unnecessary side effects. And we're talking about side effects also in hypertension as well as in people with heart disease. I would say that the majority of people who are on a beta blocker, and beta blockers cause fatigue in a lot of patients. Right, right. The majority of people who are on a beta blocker don't need to be on a beta blocker. So that's really important for the listeners. You know, beta blockers obviously have a lot of important things, especially like when I see a patient on a beta blocker, the first thing I ask them is like why they're on it. And if they're on it for hypertension, I do question that. I mean, if they're on it for an arrhythmia, you know, an abnormal heartbeat, I understand but I, I think you make a really important point that I, back in, at, at a time when they were discovered, I don't know, 25 years ago, you know, diuretics fell out of favor. Is that correct? And then all of a sudden, the beta blockers were the new, you know, favorite medication. And, you know, again, doctors tend to prescribe what they did in training, what they're comfortable with for many years. And I think beta blockers do have a lot of side effects that patients should question if they absolutely have to be on it. Right. And, you know, as I was saying before, I said 90% of hypertension is 
the two mechanisms, the kidney, the sodium volume, and the renin-angiotensin system, and its genetics and its weight and its diet, etc. The 5 or 10% others, that's where the beta blockers actually are very important and very helpful. But the point I would make about beta blockers is that even if somebody needs a beta blocker, there are some beta blockers that are kinder than others. And some of the best-selling beta blockers are not the kindest. And some of the other beta blockers are better tolerated, but they're not used widely because physicians are just not familiar with them. And some of them are older beta blockers, and they may be lost. They're, they're, They're just not promoted and not used. Well, that's why I think your book is terrific, by the way. Again, I have to put a little bit of a plug in for this hypertension in you, and I know Dr. Moran's going to be working on a new book, really goes into in-depth about the different medications. And again, sometimes, right, sometimes things that have been around for a long time have a good safety profile, and doctors that know how to use them properly, they can get tremendous benefit to their patients. I hope my listeners are still with us right now because I think this may become the most fascinating part of today's podcast. Dr. Mann spoke about the, you know, the sodium volume overload. He talked about the renin-angiotensin system, you know, that are, you know, that we can prescribe specific medications. The other system that he mentions in his book, and I, again, find this very interesting for a lot of reasons, and I'm going to tell you a story in a minute that I think hopefully you'll all find fascinating, is the sympathetic nervous system. So yes, the nervous system affects blood pressure, not in everybody, but in a certain percentage. And I wanted to share this story with our listeners, how Dr. Mann and I connected, because it turned out we had a lot in common. But several years ago, I saw a patient in my office. He was in his late 20s. He actually came in and brought his daughter with him that day. He was taking care of her. And he came in for asthma. And I was evaluating him, but I I took his blood pressure before I did the rest of my physical exam, and his blood pressure was 240 over 140 in the office. And I was pretty concerned. So I said to him, do you know your pressure runs this high? And he sort of -of matter-of-factly said, yeah, I know. I just live with this. And I was extremely uncomfortable. I said, this really, I know I was ready to send him to the emergency room, but he was with his little daughter. He wasn't going to the emergency room. I said, look, I want to call up the Cornell Hypertension Center. I knew that they were one of the best in in New York City, and I want to try to get you an appointment right away because this has to be taken care of. So I did a little bit of my due diligence. I got him the phone number. I actually got on the phone and called one of the receptionists there who were very nice, and they got him in very quickly. A week or two weeks later, I get a call from Dr. Mann. We had never met or spoken before, and he was telling me how with this gentleman, he was getting to control his blood pressure, which I was quite relieved. And then we got on the conversation about mind-body medicine. I'm not exactly sure how, but he ended up saying something so fascinating. And he got even more in-depth history that I got, that he ended up telling me that he thought that this patient's blood pressure problem was due to the sympathetic nervous system, due to repression. Unfortunately, this patient had seen his mother murdered when he was a child. And all the years, I guess, as a mechanism, he had repressed this emotion that triggered this continual high blood pressure. And then Dr. Mann and I spoke a little bit. It was really funny, actually, how we connected. We both were, I won't say disciples, but maybe he was of Dr. John Sarno, who was very famous for doing healing back pain through mind-body work on dealing with repression. And that was the start of a collegial friendship 
that I really respected Dr. Mann. And in fact, he actually wrote even a chapter in one of Dr. Sarno's books called The Divided Mind on hypertension. So with that story, maybe we could talk for a few minutes about how repression, in your opinion, affects blood pressure. I could talk for hours. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can't do that, but I think what's important... No, no, I, I want to say one quick thing, too, because the funny thing is, and I'll just, I think people will laugh at this, you know, typically we think of the type A person who develops hypertension, but in truth, and what I see in my experience, more likely the type A person causes hypertension in their type B partner or friend by, you know, putting all the pressure on them. So I think the public needs to understand what do we mean by repression? It's, you know, it's not just getting stressed. It's holding down a very deep-seated emotion that is protective in one way, but harmful in another way. Well, let me start by saying I agree with you. Repression, it's a psychological term that most, I'd say 95% of people misunderstand. And what repression is not, is, well, this is a horrible thing and I'm going to focus on something else and not deal with this. Because there you're aware you're, you're putting your attention somewhere else and trying to ignore the emotions. Repression is at an unconscious level. You don't even know the emotions are there. And the interesting thing about hypertension is everybody thought that hypertension was the mind-body disorder but half the century of research that tried to prove it and to prove that relaxation techniques are a treatment for hypertension have led absolutely nowhere. There is no doubt that in the moment you get angry, you get anxious, your pressure goes up and it comes down. That's not hypertension, that's normal blood pressure fluctuation. And they just could not prove that the tense, angry person is more prone to hypertension than the sweet guy and there was no relationship. And, and this goes in a lot of other fields besides just hypertension. But what I find is that the repressed emotions, which patients have absolutely no idea they're hiding, are what underlie hypertension and possibly many other conditions that are unexplained. And these, to summarize it very quickly, our most... I'm saying the mind-body connection is related to our most powerful emotions and our most powerful emotions are emotions we are unaware of because our unconscious mind has repressed them from awareness. So for example, a Holocaust survivor with severe paroxysmal hypertension, which I thought was related to that horrible experience, and that man was able to tell me, well, I put it behind me and the Holocaust had no emotional impact on me. That's repression. Repression is a gift of evolution. It is not psychopathology. I don't know what mankind would do without repression. However, that said, repressed emotions, I think, underlie the mind-body relationship in hypertension. When I see a 25-year-old who's not obese, and has no reason to have hypertension, and they have very definite hypertension, we look for uncommon medical causes and usually don't find any. Almost everyone has a story. Now, these are not Holocaust-level stories, but pretty bad stories, family upheavals, loss of a parent or an abusive parent or whatever. 
and they'll tell you, well, that had no effect on them. So I think this is a fascinating facet of the mind-body relationship that the mind-body literature has not looked at yet. Well, that's why we need you, because I think both of us knowing Dr. John Sarno, and may he rest in peace, I, I know when I was in residency, I was having horrific back pain. I went to orthopedists. I went to all these different doctors, really not getting very much relief. And then I went to his two-part seminar where he essentially talked a lot about this you know, repression affecting back pain and other things as well, too. And at the beginning, I couldn't swallow it. Here I was, a new, newly minted doctor and you know, expecting you know, there's got to be some type of exercise I could do to prevent this. But after going to his seminars and over the years being a doctor, I will call it Dr. Sarno patient, I really had believed in what he was doing. And, you know, just as you're saying with hypertension, you know, he used to say to his back patients, it sounds crazy, but talk to your back because it's the only way you can stop diverting that repressed emotion, even if you don't even know what that repressed emotion is, but to take it out of to inducing the pain. And I, and I know you're familiar with his work. And, I, you know, again, it was very crude and rudimentary what he was doing. And I think more and more science will eventually explain how important the brain and the mind is and the nervous system is in triggering all of this. So interestingly, I wonder even for hypertensive patients, you know, as you said, I mean, when you're dealing with the subconscious. How do you get to that? But sometimes when people go in those quiet moments, whether they're riding their bike, they're swimming, they're meditating can maybe reach deep down to find out what is bothering them. And then sometimes they get that release. I mean, I mean, you mentioned, you've told me stories of patients that I know have come to see you. It's almost like a Sarno situation where they may have told you their parents went through a horrendous divorce. A parent died when they were very young. They had to take care of other siblings and they're having hypertension. So do you medicate that patient? Do you say to them, you know, maybe either psychotherapy or working on this will control your blood pressure? How do you leave it with those patients? Uh, that's a very important question, and when we're talking about repressed emotion, we're talking about a, a, a different kind of emotion than the day-to-day -day stress and distress that people talk about. And for a lot of people who have been through hell, these are emotions that they do not want to go near. These are emotions that would have overwhelmed them at the time that they endured that trauma. And the question is, if 20 years later, 10 years later, one's life is in good order, can one then go back to those emotions? And from my experience, I would say in many cases, the answer is no, that the repression was protective, that it is very hard to break down that barrier to get in touch with emotions that could be felt the way they might have been felt at that time. And so for a lot of patients, you cannot break down that barrier, and nor would I suggest artificial means to get them Well, how did Sarno do it, though, with these patients with back pain? I mean, he, I, uh, wouldn't you say he did it with well, the back? Why is back pain different than hypertension? I think uh, what Dr. Sarno was doing, and I knew John Sarno, he's a wonderful man, I think we're talking about two different levels of repression in the sense Sarno used to talk about the symptom imperative. In other words, the back pain diverts attention away from the real issue. Right. I think the patients that he was seeing, if you're talking about, hey, he's avoiding the fact that he hates his wife or something or right. whatever, 
those are things that you don't want to get to, but hey, you got to do it. I'm talking about a much deeper level of repression where it was psychologically the healthiest, most important thing the person could do was to not be in touch with those emotions and move on. And in many cases, you can't get to them. In some cases, you can. And medicine has not even considered the role of repressed emotions right up to this date. And uh, in those cases where it was a severe, horrendous trauma, I mean, you would never ask a Holocaust survivor, well, let's go back and get in touch with those emotions. Never. I see a lot of patients know it was not the Holocaust, but it was horrible stuff. And even if they wanted to, they couldn't. And in that case, well, if I'm treating hypertension, I'm more inclined to use alpha and beta blockers, which target the sympathetic nervous system rather than the kidney. In some patients who have been through brutal trauma, I can put them on an antidepressant and they stop having their hypertensive attacks. So even if you can't get at the emotions in every patient, there are drug treatment options that this understanding opens the door for. So again, it's not just one approach, but I've had patients who do get in touch and they improve dramatically. As we're going to wind down, I want to ask you, you know, home blood pressure monitors, which are now more widely available, are they valuable to patients who have hypertension? Should they check it once a week, once a month? Does it make them crazy? Does it make their doctor crazy? (laughs) Right. I'm glad you brought that up because that's very important. I have almost all my patients monitoring their blood pressure at home. I do not encourage them to check it every day because people go a little crazy uh, about it. If they do it every day, it becomes an obsession. Unless I'm changing medications or something, once or twice a week is plenty. And if I can make just one or two points, I'd say the most common error in checking the blood pressure at home and responsible for a lot of overtreatment is that the guidelines tell us it takes about five minutes after sitting down for the blood pressure to settle to its baseline level. Most patients check their pressure by putting on the gadget and taking it right away. And that's not their baseline blood pressure. That's their pressure that's still beginning to settle down from having pulled out the machine, walked over across the room, and it's responsible for overreading of, of blood pressure. That five-minute wait is very important. All the prognostic studies about treatment of hypertension or about the prognosis of hypertension are based on readings that were taken after a five-minute wait. Should a patient also do those like three readings or is that too many? I mean, because you'll also sometimes see different readings by 10 points on each one. I think you do need three readings because the blood pressure varies from second to second. So you could get a a 140 and then half a minute later, you can get a 125. And so what you take the average, I mean, of the, of the three readings, is that generally we recommend taking the average of the second and third readings. What I generally tell patients is put on the cuff, sit down, put on the cuff, sit for five minutes, and then take three readings a minute apart and average the second and the third. And you get a much better approximation of the real blood pressure than taking it immediately or taking a single reading, which just will vary from second to second. So that's the way we recommend doing it. And I think it's very helpful because 
there's about 20% of the population whose blood pressure is normal at home but high at the doctor's office. And that information tells me not to treat that kind of patient. They don't need it. Well, we have covered a lot of ground here, and I want to thank Dr. Mann, who is truly one of the top experts on hypertension. And I hope in this podcast our listeners have benefited from the secrets to better blood pressure control, which he has discussed and which he discusses so wonderfully in his books. I hope for any of our listeners, if you have high blood pressure or if you haven't had it checked, please have it checked, or you have a loved one, please have them be examined, get the best and the proper treatment so they minimize the risk of later complications. Thank you, Dr. Mann, for coming on and your time today. You're welcome. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Smartest Doctor in the Room with host Dr. Dean Mitchell. You can continue this conversation on Instagram at Dean Mitchell MD, Facebook at Mitchell Medical Group, or at DeanMitchellMD.com.